You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org Good afternoon and welcome to Off Script, uh, January 28, 2022. This is the American Theatre's podcast uh, about all things theatrical, and I'm Rob Weinert-Kent, Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm actually coming to you where I'm sitting from the land of the Maspeth and Rockaway in Queens, uh, although my backdrop is not that, and I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, I'm also here with Amelia. Hi, good afternoon. I'm Amelia Merrill. I'm a contributing editor here at American Theatre, uh, and I'm coming to you from Mitz, Manhattan, snowy Manhattan. Awesome. Yeah, it is. It is a bit snowy today. Um, we're supposedly a bomb cyclone is coming. I don't know. A little I, bit, I, yeah. I, apparently. I, this is the most scariest sounding uh, storm. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to. I, and Amelia, it's good to have you. I, I think being transparent about this, Amelia is a contributing editor with us. Uh, we are J.R. Pierce, who left us. His last podcast was two weeks ago. He's on his way to Seattle. I think he's supposed to touch down there next week. I haven't. I haven't heard from him. Um, and we are actually now looking for another associate editor. So um, uh, I'm not saying flood us with the applications. We're actually pretty close on it, on the, on the job search. But in any case, it's great to have Amelia who's written for us for a number of years, was an intern years ago, yes. and is helping us out in this transition period. Um, so the reason there's a Camelback Mountain in Phoenix, Arizona is behind me is because our guest today is going to be Deborah Ann Bird, the new artistic director of Southwest Shakespeare based in Phoenix my hometown. Uh, I didn't have not lived there for probably 25 years, 30, 30 years. So Southwest Shakespeare uh, postdates my time there. We talk a little bit about what my what my Shakespeare background is in uh, in Phoenix. And also we'll talk to Deborah Ann a little bit later about her background and what she brings to to Arizona. Um, so it's been a it's been a despite our skeleton crew staff, uh, We've been we've been uh, we've been writing some th interesting things and and covering what we can of the field. I think the most important thing we covered, I mean, the, 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 in terms of trends that are going on right now, we all came back from the holidays after a lot of shows on Broadway and around the country were postponed, canceled, yeah. and we we got a I wouldn't say a flood, but it was certainly a lot of announcements of shows being pushed back. And Amelia, you took down you took on that story. Tell us a little bit about your piece. Yes, um, I reached out to three different theaters across the country about Omicron and just what's been going on and how everyone's been weathering the storm. Uh, it was an interesting piece because I talked to Exponential Festival here in New York, which is in sort of a different boat from other theaters because January is their month to do most of their programming, if not all of their programming. Um, and as our listeners probably know, most of the January New York theater festivals were not able to go ahead, but Exponential did manage to pivot most of their shows to digital. Um, and then I also spoke to the folks at the Guthrie out in Minneapolis, and I spoke with West Coast Black Theater Troupe down in Sarasota, Florida, which is in a different situation, both because of um, COVID protocols and, and local government uh, uh, mandates or lack of mandates, but also because they have the opportunity to do outdoor theater in January in a way that many parts of the country, including New York and Minneapolis especially, are not going to do, uh, though that would be entertaining. Uh, and yeah, I think everyone's sort of in a very unique situation and also the exact same situation, you know. Um, I think something that I talked about with everyone I spoke to is a way to reframe the conversation about digital theater and in-person theater so that we're not pitting the two against each other and we're not treating digital theater as something that we settle for when we can't have in-person theater. Instead, just respecting the forms as something that is distinct, things that are distinct from one another rather than saying, you know, we really wish we could do in-person theater and all of this digital stuff is just what we are settling for in our disappointment. How do we reframe that narrative moving forward? And yeah, it was a good, good piece. Yeah, it was a good piece, in, especially in that uh, I think we all 
both both you and I talked about it as we went into the piece. You were surprised that the New York festivals, under the radar, prototype, mm -hmm. American Realness, a couple other ones that often do, they do a bunch of these uh, alternative or experimental theater festivals around the um, APAP, uh, Association of Performing Arts Presenters, mm -hmm. which has a conference here in New York. I don't think that happened here either, again, because of the Omicron. No, wave. the conference did not happen. And but I it was striking that. The catalyst. Right. I mean, it was just striking that, that none of them, except for Exponential, had their digital ready to go, as, as they did last year. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, um, we also reported on, um, it happened right before the holidays, so we weren't able to do the story then, um, a little bit about a major acting program that yes. ended, ended a long run. Want to tell us about that story? Sure. Um, so American Conservatory Theater out in San Francisco uh, did end their MFA program. And this week, David John Chavez had a great piece that traces the history of the theater itself and their programs and how they started from a one-year program to a full-fledged three-year MFA program that's spawned so many amazing actors in the Bay Area and nationwide into something that uh, unfortunately no longer exists, though of course within the name American Conservatory Theater, they do still have many other aspects of their conservatory. It's not as if it's not a conservatory anymore. Um, but it was, it's interesting because it was the last program, MFA program at a theater that wasn't um, connected to a university. There's plenty of other university connections with large regional theaters and close by universities across the country. Um, and Pam McKinnon was quoted in the piece as saying that, you know, that was a partnership they were looking to establish before COVID, but that the three reasons why it didn't happen were COVID, COVID, and COVID. So it's very understandable <laughs> and very unfortunate at the same time. Um, it's good to know that ACT's other programs are definitely not going anywhere, but it just sort of leads into the bigger conversation about the resonance and meaning and future of the MFA for various mm -hmm. art forms in this country. Yeah, definitely. That's something we'll, we'll pay attention to um, and write more about. Um, we had a couple uh, sort of uh, wonderful essays, I would call them. Uh, one was uh, from playwright Dave Harris, who's played Tambo and Bones, is now at Playwrights Horizons uh, in previews. Uh, as the title might indicate, if you know your theater history, um, I don't know the play, but his essay gauges with the history of minstrelsy uh, and his own history as a young man doing slam poetry about uh, uh, and be, sort of touring around the country um, and getting awards and prize money for what he realized he was representing and performing a kind of blackness and victimhood um, and trauma. And what's fascinating about the piece that Dave writes is that he sort of has embraced not... Um, necessarily inauthenticity, but just that theater, he realized, wait, theater is all kind of a lie. And if I'm gonna embrace that, I'm gonna put fictions on stage, why don't I make the fiction something I really wanna see? And he, it sounds like based on a, one of his plays I saw at Louisville a couple of years ago called Everybody Black, he's very much playing with the presentation of blackness on stage, um, the frames around it um, in a way that evokes, you know, other folks like Brandon Jacobs Jenkins and um, Jacqueline Sibley's jury and others who've worked in this in this realm, but he's got an impish sense of humor and it really comes through in his piece. I I, I highly recommend his essay um, about his work. Um, we also just published today a beautiful piece that came in over the holidays and my email uh, inbox is backed up. I wasn't able to get to it right away, but I'm so glad I I I found it. Um, a writer named Gabrielle Hoyt, who's a dramaturg in the DC area, sent us a, a wonderful piece about the Jewishness of Stephen Sondheim. And uh, she makes a really compelling and entertaining case uh, for the affinity she's always felt um, uh, between you know, the faith and people that Sondheim uh, hails from and, and her own. And I think it, it's not spelled out explicitly in the piece. It doesn't really go into his own biography um and how to what extent um you know he was uh bar mitzvahed or it, 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 Jew, jewish in that sense 
but she detects in his work, especially um, his writing about his work and his thinking about his work, uh, what she sees as a, a very Jewish sensibility about stories and um, storytelling, ambivalence. Uh, it, it, it's, I, I'm not doing the piece justice, <laughs> I think, but uh, it's wonderful. It just went up. It's called The Kaddish for Steve on the Jewishness of Stephen Sondheim, um, or of, of Sondheim. And uh, that's definitely worth looking at. I, I'll just do a brief shout out uh, to our other podcasts, uh, which have had some good episodes in the past couple weeks. I, I, I teased on the last one um, that there was an emergency, uh, unexpected extra episode of Three on the Isle when uh, one of its founders and, and co-host Terry Teachout died rather suddenly a couple weeks ago. So Peter Marks and Elizabeth Vincentelli went into the studio to record one last sort of farewell episode to talk about Terry. It's beautiful. I, can't, I won't do it. You just, just go listen to it. Um, to give full credit, not just not only to Terry as a as a man and as a as a critic, but also as a, one of their co-hosts. You, you don't hear the theme music, and you, it's more of a, it's a little more shambolic and, and and rambling. But it's it's totally welcome to hear stories about 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 Terry. Um, and the other one is a wonderful uh, the subtext Brian James Polak's um, uh, podcast. He was based in Chicago. I guess he's in Madison, Wisconsin now. But of course. He talks to whoever he wants to, uh, virtually or in person. Um, he's got Daniel Alexander Jones, the uh, writer and performer who created Joe Mama Jones, but best known for that. But it's a fascinating uh, piece about how Daniel found that character and and went with the flow of where his inspiration took him. It's a really, really interesting piece. Um, so we're also working on a couple pieces. I want to just mention those really quickly. Um, there is a piece in the works right now on what what really happened at the Lark. So look for that in the coming week or so. And Amelia, you're working on a piece now about another thing that's generating a lot of conversation, especially on Twitter, but also Yes, especially IRL. on Twitter, <laughs> which is, of course, the most important space now. Um, yeah, so they just announced that the Blacklist, which is a film and TV sort of writing uh, database and, and opportunities site is expanding into theater in a way that some people are um, eagerly anticipating and others are criticizing. Um, and it's an interesting model. It'll be interesting to see if it translates to theater and to speak with various people involved with the Blacklist and other similar ventures like New Play Exchange and talk about, you know, what how those production processes in these industries differ and how and whether a one-to-one -one sort of comparison of um, screenwriting process getting to production versus within the playwriting industry, whether um, that is a, something that can be compared. It's, it's interesting. I know that um, a lot of dramaturgs and playwrights have already been talking about it quite a bit on social media, as we said. Uh, especially about the price point of, of certain things. So I did see this morning that the founder of the Blacklist said that if price is prohibitive to any writer, then there are lots of fee waivers. So that is good to hmm. know. Well, we look for you to blow the lid off that story and give us the last word on that. I mean, um, <laughs> no pressure. Um, I'll just mention next Tuesday also, I'm very excited to publish an excerpt and a review uh, of a new book by I, would say, I can openly say a friend of mine, a friend of the pod, a friend of American theater, and frequently published in our magazine, Isaac Butler, wonderful critic and writer. This new book called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. It's a brilliant book. I've read it, um, and we're going to run an excerpt from it. Um, and uh, we'll have a review, and you can read all about it and read some of it uh, on February 1st, I think, is the day we're, we're slating for it to come out. So look for that. So for today, we're really honored to have with us new artistic director of Southwest Shakespeare, Deborah Ann Bird, who's coming to us, I believe, via Zoom from Phoenix. Deborah Ann, Hello. checking in with you. Hello, how are you? I'm there, I'm well, thank you, how are you? I'm great, great. It's good to, it's good to meet you virtually. Uh, to meet you. I think we can, we can say we meet people through Zoom, right? That, mm -hmm. that counts as meeting, at least for now. Um, 
I just wanted to just start with, I, I mentioned that I'm from Phoenix originally, and I was just, just visiting there over the holidays. Um, and that's why I, I had the Camelback Mountain behind me. I wanted to ask you a little bit about just, just to start, uh, tell me a little bit about Southwest Shakespeare. Um, I don't know that much about the company. I've looked into it. It's been around for a while. Um, and maybe some of your impressions of the company. I know you were a resident artist with them for a while. So this isn't your first time in Phoenix. You didn't just land here and start. Um, so t tell us a little bit about the company uh, and what, what they do. Absolutely. Um, so uh, this is the 28th season for Southwest Shakespeare Company. It is run by board of directors and the executive director, Mary Way, um, and the producing uh, director, Stacy. Walston and um, Janine, uh, who's on finance. And um, it is a great little company. We, um, I, I met Mary Way at the Shakespeare Theater Association in 2019 um, at the conference. And we had a lot of conversations and we were talking about perhaps bringing my all-female Othello as um, about Southwest Shakespeare Company presenting the all, um, Harlem Shakespeare Festival's All-Female Othello, where we would do a collaboration where um, Southwest Shakespeare would provide eight, four women and Harlem Shakespeare would provide four women because we had a 90 minute eight character, all-female Othello. And we thought that we would start a relationship that way and it went really well. Uh, and so after that, I became um, artist in residence at the Southwest Shakespeare Company. The Southwest Shakespeare Company um, has been the standard bearer for classical theater in Arizona, uh, founded on a mission to educate, elevate, entertain, and inspire the communities of the Southwest. Southwest Shakespeare Company has transformed itself from a small inspired company of local artists and educators into a theatrical institution of the American Southwest. Um, so, as I said, we are currently in our um, uh, 28 years old. Uh, right now, we're currently performing at the Mesa Arts Center, where we are in residence there, and we'll also be performing at Taliesin West. Um, the company's next productions are The Tempest and the Tony and Olivier winning Farinelli and the King. And then they're set to play in rep at the Mesa Arts Center. And then we have Shall I Compare the the Sonnets, um, and then Mojada Amodia in Los Angeles set to play at Taliesin West. So that's what it's looking like right now for Southwest Shakespeare. That's great. That, that answers a couple of questions we had about whether it was going it was only a Shakespeare company. Obviously, you're doing classical work of yes. all different kinds, which is, which is really fascinating. I think Amelia wanted to ask you a bit about your own background. Yes, I, I would love to hear more about your background as, as an artist, which you've spoken to a bit, but also just as a person and what brought you to this point in your career and, and to Arizona again. Okay, so um, um, we know I'm Deborah Ann Bird. I am, <laughs> I'm from New York. I'm a New York girl. I grew up in Spanish Harlem. Um, I came to theater, uh, I would say old. Um, in my 20s, I found theater and um, became an actress and was an actress for many years. Um, found Shakespeare and decided that I would uh, would really like to become a Shakespearean actress. And so I knew I had to go to college if I wanted to do that and if I wanted to be really good at it. And so, of course, I went to college. I went to Marymount Manhattan College, uh, which was a really wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, being especially being the first person in my family to go to college it was um very uh exciting and interesting and challenging i was of course a young mother i had two children at the time um upon graduation from college or right before i graduated i had some exit interviews with some professors and an agent and they told me that my career in the classics would not be really good and perhaps with my facility for the for the language or for language perhaps I should try my hand at August Wilson. Um, I that I like August Wilson. I can absolutely perform August Wilson, but I came to school specifically to learn Shakespeare and to try my hand at the classics. And I was doing really well at it. So of course I was thoroughly and utterly disappointed by hearing those and I said well someone has to fix this if this is true of America that classically trained actors of color graduating with those BFAs and those MFAs you were just talking about if it is true that the artists of color who graduate with those degrees will not have a career or will have a challenge have a very challenging career 
then something needs to shift. And so um, I maybe a year later, I formed Take Wing and Soar Production, which was to give classically trained op opportunities, center stage opportunities to classically trained actors of color. And so now it's just 20 years in. Um, so every once in a while, I got a chance to act. I really didn't act for the first eight years of the organization, but then um, my mentor passed on and she said, Deborah Ann, you're an actor. You need to get on the stage if you're not a martyr. And so recently I have been performing. I wrote a show, a solo show, Becoming Othello, A Black Girl's Journey. And I have been performing that show a little bit of everywhere from the UK to Prague, to New York, to, <laughs> to Arizona, to Massachusetts. It's, it's been um, really wonderful. So it's been really great being an actor. Um, it's been really a wonderful experience being an artistic director, the producing artistic director of the Harlem Shakespeare and Take Wing and Soar Productions. And so now I find myself here in Arizona um, I was here in Arizona um, performing Becoming Othello in its really early stages when we were trying to really work out and understand what the project was when COVID happened. And so I ended up in Arizona for nine months and fell in madly in love with Arizona and, and what happens to my body in Arizona, um, mentally, physically, emotionally, and how I'm better able to serve and to give when I'm in this particular environment. So. It was kind of like a, I'm not gonna say a total no-brainer, but almost a no-brainer when um, Mary Way and the board of directors asked me to serve here at Southwest Shakespeare Company, um, because it's a it's a it's a wonderful place and space. Not only are the the people here good to me, um, uh, the environment. If, if if I'm saying it right, the environment, the nature. Uh, Everything is just wonderful and causes me to be my best me, which means I can serve better. And one thing, if you know me at all, one thing I like to do is serve. Is that answer That's great. Question? Yeah. No, that definitely answers the question. I, I, uh, uh, we have more questions about Arizona I want to get to in a second. I did want to ask you about um, the Harlem Shakespeare Festival. You Now, I, I've, we had a couple months ago, late last fall, we had Carl Cofield on. Uh, who is, uh, he's not the director of the Classical Theater of Harlem, I don't think, but he was directing a play last summer at the uh, Marcus Garvey Park that I went to go see. Actually, yes. it got rained, it got, it got rained out. It was like, it was like one of the first things you go back, we had, I had to wear, I had to wear a mask uh, into yes. the theater. And then, it, and then it, we got almost to the end of it. It was uh, Seize the, Seize the King, I think it was called. It was Seize the King, Powers. yes, that was the name yeah, of it. Was, and, um, and we got literally to the last 20 minutes of it and had it, it's got rain. <laughs> No. But um, I just wanted to know about the relationship of, of, of Harlem Shakespeare Festival to things like Classical Theater of Harlem and other uh, uh, places where Black folks and people of color do, have done Shakespeare. Absolutely. So um, in Harlem, there is something called the Harlem Cultural Collaborative. And as it, that is an entity where a lot of the cultural organizations come together and we work together to try and support each other however we can, whether it is sharing and swapping information about what's coming up in the community, whether it's the Jazzmobile or um, Harlem One Stop or the museum in Harlem or the Apollo Theater or Harlem Week events, or the Classical Theater of Harlem, or Harlem Shakespeare, any of those things, any of the cultural institutions in Harlem, including the great big churches. Um, we all work together to support each other and to make sure that um, the Harlem Opera Company <laughs> and um, the, the Chamber, um, Harlem Chamber players, we all try to work together and collaborate and try, try mm -hmm. to continue to create works um, for right. Harlem works that really inspire people. A lot of people like to come to Harlem because of our cultural history, because of mainly the cultural history and literary, and of course, um, the Harlem Renaissance. And so we come together and this, this past year, we came together and we created something called the 100th anniversary of the um, uh, Harlem Renaissance. And so in celebrating the Harlem Renaissance, um, that was really wonderful. Um, and very exciting. And there were a lot of cultural events, including with the universities like City College and Columbia University. So we just work together um, mm -hmm. to help each other spread the word, continue the legacy of what Harlem is like that. 
Right. Yeah, we just had a piece about National Black Theater, which is building a new space just up there, just a couple of blocks away from the park. Um, Absolutely. Um, National Black Theater is actually where I got my um, start when Dr. Tier was uh, still here with us on the planet. Um, I oh, went wow. to her and she asked me for a proposal and I said, if you help me build mine, I'll help you build yours. And so Take Wing and Soar Productions was um, actually in residence in the National Black Theater building for its first eight years. Um, oh, wow. which was very wonderful and very magical time. Absolutely. Cool, cool. So I, I, you know, the story you told about uh, a teacher telling you you couldn't do, you should go do August Wilson. Mm -hmm. I think we've heard so many terrible stories like that. And in fact, Daniel Alexander Jones, in his piece, I think it was, I don't know if it was Vassar or where he was at. I can't remember the school, but, um, he was told a similar thing. You're, you're, you're never going to get lead roles here. And it was an Africana studies person at that school that actually encouraged him to, to, to make his own work. And that's why we, you know, he's still with the theater at all. I feel like that, that's a, that's a story that we hear all too much. It seems to be changing now. And I think mm -hmm. Amelia, you wanted to ask us specifically about, about something in this, in this area, right? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm interested in your work and the sort of idea of how um, Black performers and theater artists are reclaiming the Black roles in the Black sort of canon, if you will, within Shakespeare. And I know that especially your perspective, um, working with the Othello text so much, both as a one-woman piece and as a larger all-women all piece. Um, I know we had a piece, gosh, maybe a year ago about maybe less than a year ago about sort of black men playing the kings within um, Shakespeare that, that J.R. wrote and what that sort of reclamation is, is like within the American theater. Yeah, I mean, let's say for when I first started um, 20 years ago, um, for an example, I, my first show was going to be Richard III. And um, I was wondering, okay, who's going to be my Richard III? And I saw a particular actor who I didn't know necessarily was a classical actor until I looked him up, but I just heard his voice on the television and he was a, a television soap star. And um, I reached out to his agents and his people asked if he would like to um, perform Richard III. We had a wonderful meeting with our directors. At the time I was hiring my um, professors from Marymount because I knew that they would be great directors. And so um, we had the meeting and after the meeting, the young man said to me, so Deborah Ann, um, <clears throat> what is the, their vision for me as, um, as Richard? Is his deformity the fact that he's a black man? Mm. And when he said that to me, something in my body said, really damn because this particular artist had for many years performed in Shakespeare in the regions but he was never allowed to play any of those roles that were the history plays or the kings or anything like that and so I said to him no my love you are black your mother's black your your um, father will be black um, your family will be and so that was the the first show for us in the very beginning to helping what I was trying to do with helping America see that these artists who graduate with these Bachelor of Fine Arts, Master of Fine Arts and these conservatory certificates that cost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, that these artists do have what it takes to be able to um, hold these roles and to speak to speak trippingly. It is a play after all, and we're all here and we're all playing. So if in fact, the universities are going to take the funds that these people, um, uh, give out like we people because I was one of those paying the thousands and thousands of dollars then if this is true for America that these artists cannot play in all the roles that are available including Oscar Wilde and um, uh, what's his name is, is just losing it um, Noel Coward and all of the plays that we're trained to uh, we're trained to work in then something needs to shift and so in setting out to shift that, 
I was trying to figure out what is the problem here. And so you had institutions saying, well, we can't find these artists. And then you had other institutions saying, well, when we do find the artists, sometimes there's something wrong with their cadence of speech. Um, and then you, then you have other people who saying, well, they don't have the the credits on their resume in order mm -hmm. to um, to cast them in a show. So how can we take a chance on them? Well, we know that you cannot have credits on your resume if you don't have opportunities to perform. And so that's why um, I, I made it a personal mission. Of course, I started a 501c3, but it was a personal soul mission to make sure that if we can stage these works and have mixed race casts, then people will be able to see that the stage one is not going to fall apart. It's not going to fall down if you use these classically trained artists. And for us, we were providing opportunities um, for, in the center stage. So that means the lead roles were played by people who have African, Asian, or Hispanic descent. We always started there. The lead was going to be one of those. And then we filled the rest of the cast out from there, of course, having um, a, a mixed race cast. Uh, and also non-traditional casting by having um, females play a lot of Shakespeare's male roles. Um, we, did, we did some of that as well. And so we've, over the years, thought that if we can demonstrate that these artists can actually do the work while help, helping these artists to build their resumes, while building their confidence, because a whole lot of them lost their confidence after graduation and not being able to get roles anywhere, they lose, you lose confidence and then you just say, well, I'm going to do something else, which means that all the funds that you spent or your parents just spent has all gone to naught. And we wanted to fix that. And so we set out to what I call change the face of American classical theater. And, um, and we see a great big change and a great big difference happening. It's not um, uh, humongous yet, but building on the, the, the what I wanna say, building on the, the legacy of the artists who came before us, Thinking back to even 1821 in New York City, when the African down in the African Grove, when the African companies players were playing Shakespeare plays um, in New York City, and then looking at the rich history that I found in Errol Hill's um, Shakespeare and Sable, I was able to see that we have a long, rich tradition and culture. Ira Aldridge, Jane White, James Earl Jones, Earl Hyman. Paul Robeson, there's a rich cultural tradition. And that, I see where the shift happened when civil rights happened in the 1960s. I can see where that shift happened and a lot of people pulled back from West, what they were calling Western theater to create works by and about um, black people. Um, and then you've seen Raisin in the Sun and, and um, For Colored Girls and all these other stories that are by and about the black experience. But classically trained actors of color were still, um, were a lot of it quieted down a lot until the 1990s. In the 1990s, you started to see it trickling up again, and you started to see um, artists begin to um, show their faces on the Shakespearean stages. But even back then and now, it's different. What's, what's different from when I started 20 years ago is that there were two people of color who were actually producing Shakespeare, running theater companies, literally two, one in San Francisco and myself in New York City. And so now when I go to the Shakespeare Theater Association um, conference, there were, this year, there were over 20 artists of color who were in leadership. So I see a lot of shifting and changing um, and understanding well what's happening right now in America, of course, with COVID and then with we see you white American theater and when Black Lives Matter and all of that, American theater has been shifting and changing even more quickly in the last two years than it has in the last 20, um, which is very noticeable. Yeah, that's great. I wanted to ask you about, um, you brought up a lot there and I, I wanted to, you know, uh, the, the debate over, uh, I mean, one, one part of the debate that you alluded to was this idea of, of pulling away from the canon, the Western canon, and creating works, new works, and not, and not, and not deifying uh, the white, the white Western canon. But it sounds like 
for you, can you tell me a little bit about your connection to Shakespeare? I know that I've talked to a lot of actors of color who really, yes, it's a Western, but they, they really resonate with it and they feel like it's their own. They can claim it as their own. Derek Lee Whedon, a wonderful actor at, in, at uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival said he hears his mother, in, in, uh, his mother's from uh, uh, West Indies, I think. He the hears his mother's Island, voice. Yes. Yeah, he yes. hears his mother's voice when he hears Shakespeare and he feels like he know he, he thinks Shakespeare must have known black people that he couldn't have written Absolutely. Othello without that. I, I wondered if, if you, if, if it's not an argument really, it's because I think there's room for all of it, but where you fall on that and what, what sort of made, what was your way into Shakespeare as a, just as a, as a person? Well, um, my way into Shakespeare was I saw a troupe of black actors performing Shakespeare at the Harlem Victoria Five. Um, at the time, uh, George Wolfe was the artistic director at uh, Joe Papp's um, Public Theater. And they sent a troupe of actors out and I saw them at the Harlem Victoria Five. And I said, oh my God, <laughs> what is that? You know, so I'm hearing Queen Elizabeth, my tongue to do thy knee is not made my voice you know, so that my nails, are, and, and, and I'm listening to this, and, and it sounds uh, amazing, and I'm a little bit foreign, but at the same time, there's something about it that is drawing me, that is intriguing me, that is pulling me closer and closer to it, and I don't quite know what it is at the time, but not too long later, I finally got it and understood that it was because the words and the cadences were the same for me as the King James Bible. I grew up in the church with the King James Bible. And so hearing the, that language, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in him will I trust. That, if that doesn't feel like Shakespeare to me, and because I was uh, so entrenched in church and on my way to becoming a reverend at one point, um, I knew the Bible and the uh, and those uh, uh, ionic pentameter, if you will. I knew that intrinsically in my body already, and so I was dr drawn and pulled towards Shakespeare because of that. And then when I actually got in it. I think for me, it was the way how you turn a phrase and take something very simple and, um, and elevate it to a whole nother level. And it feels magical. Something happens in my inner core. Something happens in my soul, if you will. Um, or if you don't want to go soulful, if you want to go physical, something happens deep down in the bottom uh, chakra. <laughs> when I start to speak the speech, um, you know, when Othello is just killed Desdemona and there is, um, there, there's something going on in him that is emotional, that is painful. He, he doesn't say, damn, she dead. He, no, he says, me thinks there should be a huge eclipse of sun and moon and that the affrighted globes yawn at alteration. Who speaks like that? Who, who, who's going to start calling forth the, uh, uh, start talking about how the universe should uh, collapse upon itself? Who does that? Shakespeare does. And something about that is, um, is a challenge and fun and interesting. And it's, as you can see, it stirs my soul. <laughs> and so that's not just for me. That happens to a lot of artists um, because Sometimes I don't like when I hear, oh, you're working on the dead white man. It's, it's not that for me. It has, it has, it has a, everything to do with the fact that he's the author and you always have to give author, authors their due, right? And so, okay, so right. he's the author. But it also yeah. has to do with the fact that his ability to, um, to talk about the human conditions and talk about human experiences, um, I like human transformation and spiritual growth. I like those things. I like being able to transform. I like being able to take a text and pull it apart and figure out what does this mean to us for us right now? How can I, in this speech, help to shift someone in the audience who might be having whatever experience they're having? How do I get people to see themselves? How do I cause empathy to happen in the world? Um, for me, and my using Shakespeare's text 
helps me to do that. I can do that with any script, of course, but there's something about having the heightened language and the heightened experiences of the emotional journeys that happen, all of that put together create uh, something really magical. And, um, and that's why I'm that's why I'm a Shakespeare girl, <laughs> because there's magic that happens in the world when I'm um, either producing it or even performing it. That's great. That's great. I hope I answered your question because I saw oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, and and a bunch of others besides. I loved it. Yeah. And you know, I am curious, like going off of every wonderful thing you just said about Shakespeare and the way it feels both in mind and body. I'm, I'm curious about why Othello has been the piece that has stuck with you the most, or maybe perhaps not the most, but has certainly been so prominent um, in your theater making. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say um, my first thing would be the thing that young girls do all the time. I don't know. <laughs> but I do know I there's there's a there's a part of me that really knows and it started with um me seeing uh, John Barton was in New York City and he was coaching celebrities uh in his Shakespeare play on Shakespeare um playing Shakespeare you know his exercises he does and many celebrities had come through and who came through was Charles Dutton Charles Dutton was the very last person to do his uh, exercise with John Barton. And he got up there and he presented Othello Act 5, Scene 2. And when he stood up on the stage and he paced back and forth, and then he looked at the audience and he started in on that monologue, it is the cause. It is the cause, my soul. And, and oh my God. By the time he finished that monologue, I was not the same person. Mainly because I was there as a student actor who had not, who had maybe done a four line monologue to that point by that time in my, um, in my learning. And I told myself, if I can ever share Shakespeare the way that he just did, even John Barton didn't have a note for him when he finished. And John Barton has notes for everybody. <laughs> but John Barton fell silent when he finished that monologue. So in my heart, in my head, now my professor had just recently told us that women are, there's a time coming where women are gonna begin to play the roles of male roles in Shakespeare. And so we should get a monologue for ourselves. So when I saw, um, this Charles Dutton playing this Othello, I said to myself, I'm going to do that one day. That very thing, I don't just wanna be a brilliant actor who's excellent, I want to play Othello. <laughs> and, and, and of course, it took me 13 years to get there because of course I was producing and, and running a theater company, being an arts administrator and all those things it takes to hold the theater company together. Um, but when I finally got the opportunity, I realized um, I had read a lot of things about Othello and trying to understand so that I could know what I was doing. And of course, there was the challenge for me of playing Othello as a male because my director, Lisa Volpe at the time, she said, Deborah Ann, I said, am I gonna play him as a man or am I gonna play him as a woman? And she said, Deborah Ann, this is a man's story. Uh, and so I said, okay, so I'm going to play him as a man. So that was already that challenge of playing him as a man. But then um, the words, I knew that he needed a large emotional um, palette. And so I said, Deborah Ann, if you look back over your life and find out where the emotional things are, then you can lend some of those to your Othello. And so in looking back over my life, that was already 
another thing happening for me, playing him as a man, the people in the world started treating me a little differently because I was presenting differently. I didn't have lipstick and earrings and, and cute hair and eyelashes. And I didn't have all of that going on. I began to present more male-like, more masculine-like. I began to take off my feminine qualities and to begin to walk in those things that are more masculine about myself or to call those things to myself. I would watch men to understand and I would drop my voice octaves, several octaves, and then begin to speak that way all day, every day, all the time. And the world around me shifted. And so all of these things coming together, the Shakespeare's text, the emotional journeys, my past, I'm looking back over my life to see if, why are people treating me so funky right now when I'm an actor playing this thing. And then I realized that over my life from the time I was a little girl, I had always done everything the girls did and everything the boys did and no one told me I was wrong. And so now I'm a grown up and folks are telling me that uh, something's funky or weird about me playing a male or being male or allowing my male qualities to show up. I began to see that something's happening in the world, not just for me as Othello, but something's happening in the world as it relates to transformation and people who are transgendered and understanding what they might be going through when other people say bad things to them or about them, um, about how they present and how they live in the world and all of that. And so I became so empathetic of men folks, how people don't hold the doors for us. I mean, them. <laughs> How, how folks don't smile at us when we're walking down the street as much, how people don't give you their seats on the bus, how you have to pay for everything at the bar. <laughs> I, all of those things became very real for me. And um, so this Othello thing, it kept morphing into something else. It morphed into Shakespeare and race. It morphed into Shakespeare and gender. It morphed into sensuality and sexuality and how we accept each other and how we look at each other and gender. All of those things kept coming up. And so over and over again, Othello in my life started growing. And I saw that something about Othello's story, Othello's pain, Othello's choices, he had a lot of pain and a lot of choices and he made a lot of bad ones. Deborah Ann had a lot of pain and a lot of choices and a lot of things that were really funky, but my choices helped me to choose life over death. And so I began to see that there's a message to be had here. When life gets funky, don't go to killing yourself and others, go to figuring out how it is you are supposed to elevate yourself and traverse the planet find your joy, find, find a way to come out of those given circumstances of what if, what if Desdemona was really cheating and now he doesn't have going to have a family or a legacy and now he has nothing again. How did he really know if that was true or not? He made some really funky choices, mm -hmm. but we don't have to make those choices. And so that's why I continue to do Othello because when I do the talkbacks, I talk about being able to really make choices and not allowing whatever's happened to you emotionally to cause you to hurt yourself and others. Hmm, that's great. I, that's a, probably a good segue. I know you, you created a show called Becoming Othello, A Black Girl's Journey, uh, based on what all of, all of what you just told us. Um, and we had a question from Facebook where someone asked, said, I am writing my first Shakespeare-inspired play. Now, they don't say whether it's a personal, you know, what kind of play, if, there's, if it's a riff on Shakespeare, and they just would have, they said, need some support. I don't know what support you can offer, but it, just thoughts about, uh, I don't know how much of Othello is in Becoming Othello, but um, it's obviously inspired by Shakespeare. And uh, you might have, in a way, just answered how, to, one way to, to do it is to live inside the play for a long time, right? But but maybe some some words words about, without them, without knowing what kind of project or which play they're talking about, yes. just some support about how to make a new play out of, inspired by Shakespeare. Absolutely. Um, first of all, in, in my play, there are over 200 Shakespeare lines, and they are from several Shakespeare plays, at okay. least 12, at least a dozen. Um, so I mix, I mix my prose life with some uh, uh, Shakespeare text. And so you would hear me talking about my daughter's, uh, my, my, my son's father, and then you'll hear me saying oh, um, Emilia's lines. What is it that they do when they change us for others? Is it sport? I say that after I say he left town. And so sometimes 
you find whatever Shakespeare is in your body while you're writing, it comes to the fore while you're writing. I was writing a very personal, deep and tragic moment of my life. And all of a sudden I heard Othello, how does thou look now, O ill-starred wench? I heard that, but he wasn't talking about Desdemona. He was talking about the Deborah Ann that was just really all messed up and crumpled up on the floor. And so, yeah, you have to find, you, you write your text as you write it, write it all out and then go back and see some of your, I just did a, okay, let me, let me, let me, let me do a real quick thing that I just did with the girls in the Prague. So I had the ladies in Prague, the young um, students in Prague, and I said, well, you guys want to write a Shakespeare-inspired solo show. This is what we're going to do. We're going to write some stories. And so then I gave them prompts, and they began to write stories. And then one of the prompts is the last time I saw you, the last time I saw you, the last time I saw you. And then just write on that for seven minutes straight. Don't pick up your pen. Just write on it. Just write on it. And then find your favorite Shakespeare and find your favorite song. Because it can't just be just plain text because that's going to be boring. You got to add some <laughs> pizzazz to it. And so, and find your favorite poem. And so once they found all of those things, one girl, I said, one of the prompts was, um, if I could meet one of my ancestors, then when, um, if I could meet one of my ancestors, who would it be and why and what would they say? One girl came away with, she started singing in her language, which was from Iraq. And so you hear all this beautiful sounds in music. And then she started to recite from, um, Henry, uh, from Richard II. I remember the, the, the days of the kings and oh my God. So you had that music transitioning into Shakespeare's text. And then she began to tell the story of how her family was put out of Iraq and they were once uh, the government there. So you gotta write your own stories first, your own personal life journey stories you add in and mix in some sound, some music, um, some poems. And that's how I did it. I just, my all of my favorite things, things that resonated with my heart. I love music. I love Shakespeare. I love the King James Bible. I love Martin Luther King. Anything that I loved, I put in the soup pot and began to just write about it. The idea is just start writing. Start writing stories. Yeah. Great. I hope that was helpful. I think it was helpful to me too. I think, yeah, I was going to say some good, very good playwriting prompts in there. Um, I'm curious, sort of transitioning a little bit, but still talking about Shakespeare for sure, um, about how Southwest Shakespeare sort of fits into the nationwide, but also more local Shakespeare theater and theater festival ecology. I know that Utah Shakes does come into Arizona sometimes, or it has in the past in sort of the Grand Canyon area, but there's plenty of Shakespeare festivals throughout the, the nation, like Alabama, and mm -hmm. just where sort of taking over now, I know, I know it's only been a few weeks, but where you envision Southwest fitting into that? Well, you know, Shakespeare has been here, um, Shakespeare, uh, uh, of course, but Southwest Shakespeare has been here like um, a quarter of a century. And um, of course we have expanded our classical audience in the Phoenix area and beyond or even to Mesa and the communities of Scottsdale and Tempe and of course Phoenix Propia, uh, Proper, uh, Peoria and, and, and more. Um, so uh, Southwest Shakespeare Company, we bring in other artists from across the globe. Sometimes we go out and we attend places like the Los Angeles um, festivals, the French festivals in London, um, the Harlem Shakespeare Festival. So through partnerships, we bring the world of Shakespeare here to Arizona as well, so that the Arizona audiences get opportunities to experience not just our local talent, because we have a lot of local talent here as well. We have a core company. Um, and so we were trying to boost morale during the, um, crazy pandemic time, which is still happening, but in the gist of it, in, the, in 2020 and 2021, we were trying to still have artists feel like they were creating. And so we went into the digital world and started creating a new, um, a new digital experience of Shakespeare. <sighs> My goodness, it was like every week feels like. And so yeah. we, were, we are really interested in making sure that this area 
um, gets its own little piece of Shakespeare. When you think about it, or when you look at it, there are over 200 Shakespeare festivals or Shakespeare companies in America, even more than the UK. But our little piece of plot of space, of course, here is Arizona. There is, um, um, of course, Flagstaff Shake. Shakespeare up there in Flagstaff. Um, and so we're, of course, we look to do collaborations sometimes, but down here in the Valley area, Southwest Shakespeare Company is um, the go-to place and space for all of your classical and Shakespeare. Um, I, um, well, I was gonna say for what ails you <laughs> in that area. If you want some of that, you can come over there to us because we are awfully, absolutely gonna give you some literary stuff, some Shakespeare stuff, some um, really exciting stories, um, figuring out how to make them new and exciting. You know, we're coming to you soon with the Classical Lab reading series, um, which is another program that is absolutely going to give more opportunities to designers, more opportunities to actors, more opportunities to up and coming producers up and coming directors, up and coming, or even sometimes we use really um, tried and true people um, who come on and work with us like Elizabeth Swain, who was one of my professors who's been doing Shakespeare forever. And so we bring her into the mix and we create new Shakespeare experiences for the people here in Arizona, for um, our artists who we serve, um, for the communities who we serve, for the places where we live and work and serve. We, um, we break them the best that we can in um, from the Shakespearean canon and then from other classical canons as well. That's great to hear. I, I, I'm, I'm really glad to hear about it. I, 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 uh, I alluded to the fact that I was, I moved away from Phoenix in 1990. So I think maybe before uh, South by Shakespeare was around and I was gonna say my first Shakespeare play I saw on stage was uh, Romeo and Juliet from the Old Globe <clears throat> And San Diego came to and brought that production to uh, Scottsdale Center for the Arts. Tova Felcha played Romeo and uh, Juliet. That's that tells you how wow. long ago that was. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> that, that that dates me. She was she was really hot, Juliet. I gotta say. Um, in any case, uh, I wanted to ask you <laughs> if I could. Is that when you fell in yeah. love with Shakespeare? <laughs> um, sure. That had something to do with. It. I think I also saw Derek Jacobi do Hamlet on PBS. I think those were the two. It happened in the same year. I think I, I saw. PBS and I saw local and it was wonderful. So I just wanted to close up on something. You've been in Arizona a little bit. Is there, can you tell us what, what you love to do there? A, a favorite, favorite restaurant, favorite um, hike, uh, hike location? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> mm. I kind of like wildflower. I mean, wildflower, I think is what it's called. Um, so okay. my, my, what I really like to do here is take walks. Okay, yeah, that's gonna ask what you like to do. That's there. that's what I really like to do here. I I don't do it mm -hmm. as much as I need to. Like I should be walking yeah. every single day. But <laughs> when I do take my walks, it's really beautiful. I also like sitting out in the backyard and just um watching nature and the birds. Um yes. and every once in a while I'm, I gotta be careful because I see a little coyote or something like that. Not a coyote. <laughs> I haven't seen any coyotes, that's a lie. I saw the bobcat. Oh a bobcat, wow. Fence and trying to snatch up a rabbit, and I hear, and so I'm like, I can't go. Um, <laughs> but it was so, it's so beautiful here. Um, thank God for the weather, because sometimes I have, this, I have a leg who, that I broke that's still on the mend, and I broke it in the '90s. But sometimes it still gets that little bit of, you know, um, arthritis in it. And then I've had mm -hmm. this knee that tried to have a meniscus tear and something about being in this good weather <laughs> and quietly taking walks. And I know I find a lot of prayer time when mm -hmm. I'm quiet and alone. And that really helps to build me up and gives me enough strength to keep working and keep pushing in this challenging world that we live in. Um, mm -hmm. And so some of my favorite things to do in Arizona is a lot of with a lot of people but a lot of times just to be alone with nature and and being able to download information and 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 chat with god about what's happening in the world and how do we make it a better place and i, I do a lot of that here in arizona i just find myself going into a nice blissful space um it's good for that it's good for coming here and then recentering yourself absolutely in order to that's go great. back and do what we do yeah yeah that's great. Yeah, I, I thought that's I, that's what I do when I visit, but that's because I'm on vacation. But it's good to know. Yes, that no, you, uh... I do it all the time. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because because you need that mm -hmm. in order to um, lead the people, um, help the people, hold the people, um, mm -hmm. because you're in service to the people. And so when you're in service to the people, you have to restore your soul so right, that you can right. continue to give and share. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a great place for that. Deborah, I can see why you have the job. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, it's been such a pleasure, and thank you for taking this uh, this time with us. Um, and I look forward to sometime when I'm out there, I'll have to catch a production because I do actually make it out there. Yes, thank and, you so uh, much for having me. I appreciate you both. Um, blessings to you, and I can't wait to see you in Arizona when you come out here. Don't be trying to hide out. We just relax. Oh no, right? I won't. No, I'll come I'll, on out. I'll, see us at Southwest Shakespeare Company. I'm sure we'll have a great show on for you. Awesome. Well, I plan on that. I plan on it. Amelia, thanks so much for your time. Our producers and Charlotte, please support TCG, which uh, makes uh, American theater and a lot of other great things in the theater possible. Um, and thanks for your time. Have a good day. Indeed. Have a good day. Bye, Amelia. All right. Bye now.